As I continue to do this little podcast of mine, it grows, it changes. And I like to think that it's still settling in to what it might be. So I consider experimentation a good thing. In the spirit of this, this episode of The New Professor is a personal story. More of amusing on how memory works. With a little bit of mindfulness thrown in. So if you like photography, if you like mindfulness, I hope you enjoy. I'm Dr. Ryan Strait, Assistant Professor of Educational Technology at the University of Arizona, and this is The New Professor. For a long time now, I've either worked as or made a hobby of being a photographer. It started in undergrad with the rental of a digital camera that took three and a half inch floppy disks from the university library. It was big, it was clunky, and the pictures it took were of questionable quality at best. But it gave me the opportunity to try out my eye, as it were, with nothing up front, monetarily speaking. This was Athens, Ohio. A great place to be a photographer, truth be told. From the picturesque Appalachian Hills to the sprawling, abandoned hilltop mental institution known as the Ridges that they say is haunted, to just wandering around the Ohio University campus and that part of Athens proper, the opportunities for nature, industrial, and street photographers are pretty much endless. So I took this hulking plastic monstrosity and a sack of floppy disks. This was March of 2005, mind you, so it, not that long ago, I suppose, though the camera was seemingly humorously outdated even then. Anyway, I took them up to the ridges and to a couple cemeteries and started snapping pictures. Not having taken any formal photography classes before, I was, to use the technical term, terrible. I had no eye for composition, had no idea how exposure worked, I didn't know an f-stop from a hole in the ground. But I enjoyed it, and, truth be told, was impressed by these pictures that, while obviously and objectively poor, were of my own creation. I'd taken individual, random pictures with the family camera throughout my life, of course. When on a trip to Washington, D.C., I took four whole rolls of film, which was impressive at the time. That was 1990. That even included a picture of Archie Bunker's chair, and pressed to explain the significance of that specific item in the Smithsonian, I admitted that I had no idea, but it sure seemed important. Anyway, point being, though I had little to no experience or training, something struck a chord in me at being able to frame a scene with my eyes, take a picture, and then immediately have a copy of that forever. A copy that, unlike a Polaroid, could instantly be transferred across the planet. Shortly after my adventures with the world's oldest digital camera, and I mean, this thing didn't even embed EXIF data, and I can't even tell you what make and model it was. I want to say it was a Sony Mavica, but I can't be 100% sure on that. 
I purchased a small 4-megapixel Nikon Coolpix. It was just a little point-and-shoot, but it took SD cards, fancy, and it didn't have to be returned to the library after 48 hours. That was April of 2005. I toyed with that camera, but without the option to set shutter or aperture, it was pretty hindering. Eventually, I learned that different scenes or picture modes on the point-and-shoot corresponded with different combinations of shutter and aperture, so I could manipulate it that way to get what I wanted. But it didn't take long to outgrow that, though, and over the winter holiday that year, I got my first quote-unquote big camera, a Nikon D50, a DSLR, and a few lenses to go with it. And oh boy, talk about a big step up. Again, being completely self-taught, this was quite the learning curve. I forced myself to use nothing but the aperture priority, shutter priority, and manual modes. I knew that the only way that I would become a better or even a good photographer was to take lots and lots of pictures. So I called around to charities and newspapers asking if they were in need of a photographer that would work for next to nothing, or in some cases, actually nothing. Because at that point I just wanted practice, and it turns out that people really like free labor. So this went on for a couple years, and me getting calls to photograph this event or take pictures for this ad campaign, and I did group photos for local businesses and food photography for restaurants, and of course lots and lots of pedestrian standard shots like clouds and snow. But it wasn't really about the subject, it was about the process. And that still goes on today, though I no longer get paid for it. Sometimes lunch, but no paychecks. I do still take pictures at events, especially events like the All Souls Procession here in Tucson every year. A beautiful tribute to the loved ones that have been lost over the past year, and I'll link to that in the show notes. I highly encourage everyone to check it out and donate if they can. I've been selected as a finalist or even won some contests over the years, but nothing major. Still, it's become my main hobby and non-work and non-interpersonal source of happiness. But something happened this past month that has really turned my whole experience on its head. Well, maybe not the experience, but the way I feel about it, and in turn, about myself. See, I recently traveled back east for a mini-vacation to visit with family and friends and to see a Nick Cave concert that I am still recovering from. Wow. I brought my current camera and gear, something I normally do when I travel, and the camera bag takes the place of my one personal item on a flight. So, as usual, I took some pictures during my trip, but mostly with my phone. The Google Pixel's camera is astoundingly good. It's not that I didn't have anything to take photos of with my fancy camera. I did. I just didn't break it out as much as I normally do. And towards the end of my trip, before coming back to Arizona, my mother gave me a bag full of old camera equipment. Like three speed lights that I soon wouldn't work. And I didn't think much of it at first, I just thought, well, I won't be able to use any of this, but boy, was I spectacularly wrong. But let me back up for a second. See, for years, 12 to be exact, I'd gotten used to a certain way of capturing an image. That is, have a workable understanding of the mechanics, take the shot, check the preview, adjust, repeat until I've got the shot I want. It was, to put it bluntly, an incredibly lazy form of photography. I feel like I had 
half an eye. That I basically relied on educated guessing and trial and error. Sometimes this worked really well, and sometimes it failed miserably. More often the former than the latter, thankfully. So when I looked in that bag, and I found a fully functional Yashica Electro 35, an analog film camera manufactured in 1970, I thought, well, if that actually works, that could be kind of fun. And when I got back to Arizona, I cleaned up the camera as well as I could and threw in a roll of true black and white film. I even had to find an instructional video on YouTube to make sure I wasn't messing something up. That's how long it's been since I'd used film. Now, to give you an idea of what this camera is like, it's what's called a rangefinder. Essentially, this means that instead of looking through the lens itself, like an SLR, where you can actually see the focus of the item that you're looking at, it uses parallax to depict whether the subject is in focus or not, and you adjust until the two images overlap. And I suggest you look up how it works. It's really quite ingenious, if a little difficult to use in low light, though there are some workarounds. I'll link to the concept in the show notes. The other thing about the camera is that it isn't a manual camera. It was one of the first automatic cameras. So you could choose the aperture, and you could choose the ISO metering that tells you if you're over or underexposing, though how much it doesn't tell you. So you could be one stop or 10 stops, you never know. But the actual ISO is chosen by the film itself, obviously, and the shutter speed is chosen automatically from anything between a full 30 second exposure, call it bulb, and one five hundredth of a second. See, the really neat thing about it, though, is that it doesn't fall into the standard shutter speed stops, like 1 60th up to 1 1 25th of a second, but instead floats variably through the entire range, kind of like a variable transmission on an automatic car. That means that you'll actually get shutter speeds like 1 17th of a second and 1 392nd of a second. It's really fascinating. Anyway, the point I'm getting to is this. Going from the instant snap, check, fix, repeat, proof and gratification of the DSLR to a camera system in which I have 24 or 36 attempts at most, none of which I get to see or even get verification that the damn things are usable, it's been a bumpy but enjoyable ride. It forces you to become more deliberate. There's no longer an option to take 20 or 30 shots at a time with the assumption that at least one of them will be good, probably. You compose, you adjust, you shoot, and that's it. And it got me thinking about all those pictures that I've taken over the years, literally tens of thousands of them, in my memory of those events, or rather, my lack of memories of those events. So in writing this episode, I went back through some of the pictures I took a decade ago, and if I didn't have the proof in front of me, I would have assumed that they were someone else's memories, not my own. So while I have a physical, or rather, digital proof of an experience, I don't really have a recollection of it. And it turns out that this is actually pretty normal. There's something called the photo-taking impairment effect, coined by Dr. Linda Henkel, a psychologist at Fairfield University. Essentially, Dr. Henkel found that as we photograph something, we, to use her word, outsource that part of our brain that commits it to memory. 
So while we might be recording these events, we're creating less experiences. And I would argue that the fact that we all walk around with these incredible cameras in our pockets, the Pixel, remember, like I mentioned, has the potential to turn this effect into an epidemic. But surely this is a double-edged sword, right? Our memories are faulty. We know this. I mean, even eyewitness accounts are questionable at best. Ask three people who saw a single event to recount it and you have three different stories. So maybe living in a world that's documented at nearly every turn is better in the long run. Then again, we run the risk of being a society that, again, has records of everything and memories of nothing. And I shudder to think of what that can do psychologically. There's probably a dystopian novel about this floating around there somewhere, I'm guessing. Anyway, ever since I started photographing with actual film, again, if you can call it again, I've been doing some mindfulness experiments, let's call it. As I'm composing a picture, I'm trying to be, and I'm going to use this word again, deliberate in every aspect. And I don't just mean of the composure. I mean of everything. This isn't just because good photography basically requires this, but specifically to address that photo-taking impairment effect. So as the prints are returned to me and I'm looking through them, I try to recall that exact moment in as much detail as I can, expanding my memory beyond the confines of the photo, recalling the sounds, the smells, the heat. I'm in Arizona, there's always heat. I don't really have a mechanism to determine if this process is working, or even achieving anything at all, but it's a fun experiment, and I guess I'd call it my own little kind of mindfulness meditation. So I suggest trying that next time you whip out your phone to document whatever everyday event you seem compelled to record. Just wait for a second. Really look at what you're doing. Soak up the ambiance, and don't just make a photo. Make a memory. Because the two are not always one and the same. This episode of The New Professor was brought to you by me. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. If you enjoyed, please tell your friends. The New Professor gets the majority of its listeners from word of mouth. See you next time.